Hi, this is Samir Kaji, your host of the Venture Unlocked podcast. On this episode, we chat with Jody Sherman Jahick, co-founder and managing partner of 2011 founded Align Partners. Jody is also a founding member of AllRays, whose mission is to promote gender diversity and equality in venture. Unlike many venture firms, Align Partners focuses on supporting early stage companies who are designed to build and scale on lean operating models. Align believes this creates better alignment around incentives with founders and enables a great outcome for all members of the cap table. Align has raised a total of 125 million across three funds. In this episode, Jenny walks us through why and how this strategy has worked for them, how she and her partner Susan decided they'd be a strong team, thoughts on power law math, and her candid views on diversity and some of the potential challenges ahead. Now let's get into this episode to hear all of this and more. Jody, thanks so much for being on the show. Glad to be here, Samir. Thanks. Before we get into things, I want to maybe start off with your personal background, how you started off in venture. So venture was not an obvious career for me. I was a physics nerd and an entrepreneur. I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Everybody in my family is an entrepreneur. My dad, my grandparents, my brother, my husband, my uncles, everybody. And I was an entrepreneur before going to the dark side, as my family likes to say. I had been part of three startups, both in the U.S. and in Europe, before starting a venture career. I had wanted to work for NASA. That was my original goal. (laughs) In the 80s and 90s when I was in college, it turned out that that was mostly working on defense systems, which I didn't want to do. (laughs) So I ended up doing startups instead. But when I was in graduate school at Kellogg, and I fell into venture capital through the auspices of the Kauffman Fellows Program, which is also how I met my co-founder, Susan Mason. And Samir, I know you are a, a proud alum of the Kauffman Program as well. I am. And uh, I did not know that you and Susan met at the Kauffman Fellows. That's amazing. We did. In fact, she, this is really going to date us, but she was class two and I'm class five. So this is a long time ago. So I did a fellowship at Battery Ventures in Boston. During my time at Battery, which was in the late 90s, early 2000s, I saw our firm go from $400 million under management to $1.8 billion under management. And I've always worked in really early stage companies. Again, everybody in my family is a founder. So it's starting at the very early stages is what I do best as I saw our firm go all the way up to these very, very large sizes, I started to realize that I really wanted to stay with these small deals that didn't make an impact on such a large fund. So I ended up, after my fellowship, moving to Voyager Capital, where I ran our wireless practice. I, I didn't mention that a couple of the companies I'd worked with before my venture career had been in, in the wireless data industry. And it's funny, I chose Voyager partly because of its smaller size. Uh, we had, uh, at the time I joined, uh, just under $300 million under management. And over time, I found that even those funds were just a little bit too large to do the kind of deals that I wanted to do. Namely, companies that were really old school and wanted to raise as little money as they can get away with, not as much money as they could get away with. Over time, and after having co-invested with Susan in a particular company that I could see that we saw eye to eye on, we ended up forming Aligned Partners in 2011. So yeah, almost almost 10 years ago now. And when you 
and Susan started the line. This is almost a decade ago now. You had known each other going back to the Coffin Fellowship, as you just mentioned. What were your experiences, both with Voyager and Susan, I believe with Onset, in really shaping what kind of firm you wanted to build with Aligned? Our experiences deeply shaped the ethos and approach of Aligned Partners. I had briefly toyed with going back to being an operating founder of a company before joining up with Susan. And that brief moment of thinking about starting a company with a friend made me realize that all I had learned from my years at that point, almost a decade in venture capital, had led me to question a lot of the fundamental assumptions of venture capital. Boiling it down to its essence, I didn't think there was any venture firm that would have offered a term sheet that I would have accepted. I just knew too much about venture. And that was an aha moment because it made me think, huh, so maybe that's the thing that the world needs is a venture firm that would offer a term sheet along the terms that were aligned enough with the founder's interests that I would accept it. Susan had had similar experiences, especially in funding companies that were really capital efficient and understanding why that mattered, which we can dive into at at any level of depth. So that kind of ethos of how do we create a platform under which founders can do exceptionally well, investors can do exceptionally well, GPs can do exceptionally well. What's the basis for that? And what we found is the common crux between all of those interests was operating not just capital efficient, but resourceful approach to how capital is used. That's great. And we we will certainly get into the portfolio construction, the ethos, how you think about investing in companies and the type of companies that generally are of interest to you and Susan. Before we do that, I I really want to talk a little bit more about yourself and Susan. Long relationship, maybe a decade before you started Align Partners. One of the things I always joke about is partnerships in venture firms are a very, very long-term endeavor, much longer than the average marriage in the U.S., which is 8.2 years. And yet I see a lot of venture capitalists doing latch-on partnerships, uh, not knowing each other very well and starting. How did you and Susan talk about this and determine that the two of you together were the right partnership to launch Aligned? Gosh, you are so right to glom onto the the risk of forming a partnership. I think LPs are really attuned to this. So when firms are formed, understanding how the partners are going to work together is is really key because not just for the operating side, which matters a lot, but also for the LPs to understand. You know, Susan and I had met more than 20 years ago now through Kaufman. And then we invested together in a company where we got to see each other on a board We got to see how each other thought through problems that a company went through. I mean, in this case, the wireless company that we had both invested in, which eventually had a a nice successful exit, but it it took a lot of twists and turns, as most companies do. We saw that company go through the 2008 downturn. We saw how each other responded to different setbacks and successes in the company. And what we really saw was that our value system about what the right way to approach a decision was matched very well. But our actual skill sets were super complementary. I tend to focus more on strategy, communication, direction. And Susan is much more bottoms up. She tends to focus on operations, metrics, individual 
decision processes. So what that has meant for us as a partnership is several things. First of all, it's meant that there are no surprises in how we approach decisions, but we don't always agree. Rather, we've developed over time an ability to respect each other's decision processes, listen pretty well to each other, and understand that we're going to come to different decisions by different processes in different areas of focus and evaluate that in each other. I think LPs really see that when we talk to them. They comment on it constantly. The good communication between us, the sense of respect between us. And they comment on it so frequently that I wonder what they are seeing at other firms. <laughs> Partnership dynamics are one of those things that are very, very difficult to master. And the bigger the partnership, the more complex. You and Susan have probably both seen this uh, in your previous lives. But you had the unique luxury of getting to know Susan at Kaufman Fellows 10 years before you started Align. What would you tell people that don't have the luxury? What is the framework that people should go through when thinking about partnering with somebody to launch a venture fund? Susan and I were on a board together. I think that that's I would be on a board with somebody or co-invest with somebody before I would consider a partnership. You just need to know how they're going to think through uh, decisions and how you're going to talk through decisions together. There's no substitute for that direct experience. I don't know how partnerships form well without that kind of knowledge of each other. I completely agree. And the one thing that you and Susan both have is a unique alignment, no pun intended, in terms of the type of firm you wanted to build. But let's talk a little bit about that. The aligned focus is investing in startups that heavily incline toward lean and capital-efficient operating models. Why is that important to you when everything that I see is around, you know, VCs raising bigger funds, investing more capital, companies going on a massive capital trajectory early? Tell us a little bit more about your thought process. We form our whole portfolio construction approach around a slightly askew stance. And that is that the best way to compete with better capitalized companies is not necessarily to have more money, though that sometimes is an effective way to compete. It's primarily to serve your customers better than anyone else does. Sometimes having too much money insulates you from needing to do that. So we tend to focus on companies with very experienced entrepreneurs and very, very clear value propositions. It does mean that they can't pivot as much. It does mean they can't make the same number of mistakes. But it also means that the founders get to keep a lot more of the company. Now, Samir, when we talk about creating capital-efficient companies inside of a small fund, that means something very unusual for our funds that I think as we think about portfolio construction will come up again and again. And that's that we have concentrated positions in our portfolio. This is pretty unique for a $50 million fund where our funds tend to hover around $50 million a piece. We take 25, 30% positions in each company. So that means something very different in terms of both how the companies operate, but also what each company contributes to the portfolio and how we think of the portfolio as a whole. We don't have 50 or 100 seed stage companies in each fund. We have seven to 10 individual investments in companies that start at the Series A and go up. 
And so each of them need to perform in a way that is different than a typical seed stage portfolio. You're 100% right in that the typical and conventional seed portfolio does have 25 to 50 companies, perhaps more. As you think about that aspect of being much more concentrated, we hear about power law all the time. And we know all the stats about the number of companies that achieve these billion-dollar outcomes. How do you reconcile having a very concentrated portfolio versus having enough shots on goal to get some of those very large exits? So let's approach this from two ends, because there's kind of two different paradigms here that need to be addressed to answer this question. The first one is the assumption that you need to raise a lot of money in order to have a huge exit. I mean, this is, while popularly true, it's actually false. There are lots and lots of companies that have gotten to huge exits while raising minimal money. Some of them you know very well. (laughs) WhatsApp did raise $50 million at a late stage and spent none of it before being acquired for $19 billion. Viva is my favorite one because it's an enterprise company like what we do. They raised a total of $4 million in venture capital from emergence before going public, and they're now worth, what, billions and billions of dollars. It's one of the most successful venture investments ever made. There are lots and lots of examples like this that we could go through. Uh, Now, it is true that once companies become very successful, even if they were capital efficient in the beginning, sometimes they go on to raise a lot of money in the late stage. It doesn't change the fact that at the early stages, it isn't necessarily helpful to raise tons of money. It does dilute you a lot, and it does change the bar for what a founder needs to achieve, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to outcomes. In fact, our data shows that it doesn't at all correlate to outcomes, how much money is raised at the early stages. So that's one side of what I would think of as the mythology around big exits. But let's address the other side that you're talking about, the power law. Isn't a typical venture portfolio something like 25 or 30 companies where one-third die, one-third kind of go sideways, and one-third are the winners with only one or two of those being the big winners? Now, if we're willing to do some math together, I could show you where that power law derives from and why it may not have to apply to the capital-efficient companies that we work with. You want to dive in on that? Yeah, yeah, let's do, let's do it that way. So, Samir, if you just look through the numbers of what a fund needs to return, every company needs to exit at at least 50 to 100% of the size of the fund. So if you have a fund that is $500 million, for example, which is not a particularly large fund these days, Every company on average has to exit for $500 million or more in order for the fund to return 3x, which is basically what the number that, that LPs are looking for. What does that mean, though? If you have a portfolio that, where a third of the companies are going to go down and a third are going to go sideways and a third are where all the returns are, that means for that third where all the returns are, they all have to exit at what is it, $1.5 billion or above. It's the size of the funds that's driving the power law, not the essence of the companies themselves or the essence of venture capital itself. And the problem that we see here, Samir, is that the average venture exit is nowhere near $1.5 billion. Nowhere near it. The average venture exit over the past five to seven years 
has been somewhere between, and this is actually a median, not an average, has been somewhere between 70 to 80 million. So we have to ask ourselves, how many standard deviations out from the median do you want to bet the farm on? Right? So this is what drives the power law, that you need some of the exits to be so far off the median in order to provide adequate returns for a large venture firm that you can really only swing for the fences. I think this is a very strong argument for constructing rational portfolios around smaller funds. So our funds are 50 million and a properly constructed portfolio can easily attain those exits, especially since we we tend to own such large pieces, right? We own 25% plus of every company. We have better ability to get high performance from those companies that are meaningfully impactful to our fund and our portfolio without having to aim at the billion-dollar exits. And that's not to say that we're not getting billion-dollar exits. We have one in in fund two that is heading in that direction right now. And they've only raised $3 million to date. So these things are quite possible, these meaningful exits. But the power law rule, Samir, is mostly driven by the fund sizes, not by some fundamental law of physics. It's an interesting point that you bring up and, and certainly points to the fact that ownership is such a critical part of investing. One of the things I'm always amazed by is the math behind returning a 3x and even for small funds. And I'm just going to walk through an example. A $30 million fund, for example, to get a 3x net to their LPs is really returning 3.5x, assuming a 20% carry term, which is, I'd say, the vast majority of the funds out there. If you look at a lot of the seed firms out there, initial ownership is between 5 and 7%. And because a lot of the companies are likely very capital inefficient, you're having dilution that in many ways will get the exit ownership to 1% to 3%. And at 3%, you're really looking at enterprise value needed of 3 to $3.5 billion to get to a 3x net for a $30 million fund. So the math is really, really hard. And I'd really enjoy hearing the point of view of the ownership and how this can work and how you can make money in different ways. The ownership matters so much, Samir. And it, you know, this without even unpacking the dynamics of follow-up investment, how much to reserve for follow-on. Another thing that I think needs to really be considered in the current market that we're in is that a lot of seed funds today have been formed in a market where we've only seen up, up, up and to the right, where we haven't seen compressive rounds. It's really hard to hold on to ownership when there's any kind of compression in the interim. And by compression, I mean punitive down round. Those are coming. Some have already come. So managing ownership to us is one of the key skills of how you think through a portfolio and how you manage a fund. Since you bring up reserve ratio, how do you look at reserves in the funds that you raise? What percentage is for initial investments and how much on average do you reserve for follow-on financing in those same companies? We reserve at least 100% of the initial investment for follow-on investment, sometimes more. And then what are the determinants? And this comes up a lot when I talk to managers about portfolio construction. What are you thinking in terms of the the one-to-one ratio? 
How, how do you make a decision on which companies you follow on? What are the main determinants that you look at? It's all embedded in the performance of the company. And being able to step back far enough from your portfolio companies to be able to really take a jaundiced look at which companies are performing to par and which ones are, are not is pretty hard. That's why having a great partner is so important, right? That you can bounce ideas off each other and make sure that we're looking at things clearly and not looking at things the same. I admire sole GPs who are able to do that on their own. I find it extremely helpful to have somebody by my side <laughs> that bounce these back and forth off of. And one more point that I want to get into, and we talk about the current venture world, which, by the way, is not overly capital efficient in terms of the type of companies people are backing. Funds are getting bigger. There's been a fairly recent, maybe over this last couple of years, whereby we've seen big funds invest in seed stage companies. And in those cases, the valuations are higher, the size of the round is higher. How do you effectively compete against some of the bigger pocketed investors that are going to these entrepreneurs that you're talking to and offering more money at higher valuations? Let's talk about why funds get bigger. Funds get bigger for a bunch of reasons, right? There's incentives in the market for venture capitalists to raise ever a larger fund. The first and most important of those incentives is the management fee, right? That's a pretty effective carrot. If you, if you know you're going to make a steady amount off of a certain fund size, why not make it larger? But there's a second reason that we don't talk about much, and that is social pressure within venture. I know I heard this a lot. Gosh, Jody and Susan are so experienced. Why on earth are they raising $50 million funds when they could be raising $500 million funds? Doesn't that say something about them? You know, We should put in context why the funds get bigger and what's driving it. Is it necessarily because of the needs of the portfolio companies, or is it something else? Now, with respect to competing with other funds, especially large funds, just like our portfolio companies compete with better capitalized companies by virtue of staying closer to their customer and serving their customer needs better and more efficiently, we compete with larger funds by staying close to our value proposition and offering the single best value proposition to founders in our space. Namely, if you are a capital efficient founder, if your goal is to raise as little money as you can get away with, rather than as much money as you can get away with, we are the single best provider of that capital. We are the most experienced group doing that. Uh, we offer the full suite of venture services, unlike trying to cobble together a bunch of seed investors to support you all the way through. We do follow-on investing. So we offer something fairly unique, just like our companies offer something fairly unique to their customers. And by doing so, I think we're able to not compete on the same playing field. We just change the rules, right? If what you want is a large fund that can support you up to a $100 million raise, we'll help you find those folks, but we are not those folks. Instead, we're extremely targeted. And as such, we've been able to compete really well for the deals that we want at extremely favorable terms and see exceptional results for that. You've exercised a level of discipline and staying really close to your knitting. 
The thing that I'm always curious about is very few venture funds that start off small stay small. And you mentioned one of the reasons, which generally speaks to things like management fees, the economics that a bigger fund provides a GP and a GP team. But when does it make sense to scale up? You've stayed at 50 million. The world has changed in terms of the size of seed rounds. What is the calculus a manager should go through when thinking about staying the same size or growing from the historical fund sizes? The world doesn't ever need another venture fund, right? So why does the venture fund that you're bringing to the world exist? What's differentiated about you? Why does an LP investor need you? And how does your whole suite of investment focus and services fit together? Whenever you figure out or propose a fund size for a new fund or for a new firm, you got to think about how all that fits together. Too often I see GPs scale up for the sake of scaling up because the money's there, perhaps. And I don't know that that's a recipe for great returns. Ultimately, our goal is to provide great returns to investors. Ideally, our goal should be to provide great returns to those founders as well. Sadly, venture capital tends to do a poor job of providing great returns to founders, which is why we're so focused on aligning those interests and aligned partners so founders can get their fair share. But all of those interests need to be considered. All angles of the value proposition need to be considered before you scale up, if you're going to be successful and sustainable. Going to the word sustainable, I think you and I have talked about this. You know, a lot of people that want to get into venture are thinking about raising a fund versus really building a long-term durable franchise. The average fund in today's world is probably 12 to 15 years before the final investment is wrapped up. That's a long time. During that time, there's so many macro externalities that happen, cycles happen, political there are so many of these things that are completely outside of the firm's control. How do you think about economic and cultural resilience, both for your firm, the people at your firm, and your portfolio companies when these issues, at the end of the day, are so systemic in nature? Just thinking about the beginning of 2020 and how we would never have known that we'd end up here, where we are right now, things change and change rapidly. I think a lot about understanding what your firm is and, and why in order to communicate better with all of your stakeholders. And by stakeholders, I mean the partnership, the LPs, the portfolio companies, the founders who are pitching you. The more you know about why your firm exists, how you make decisions, the more transparent you can be with each of those stakeholders. I'm observing both in my portfolio companies and also in my LP relationships that understanding those items, being able to clearly say how decisions are made, why those decisions are made the way they are, has been a key to maintaining the trust of the LPs in our fund, just like it's been a key for the founders of our portfolio companies to maintain the trust of their employees. A question that I'm sure you get, and I certainly get, is what are the things a firm should do, a GP should do to defend themselves against those unknowns that are invariably going to happen? The most important thing to do is communicate as much as possible. 
the more you communicate with your LPs, and we haven't talked much about LP management in this discussion, but the more you communicate with your LPs directly and candidly, the more faith they will have that you can manage through uncertainty. The next thing is to be clear-eyed about what is possible in your portfolio. Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, used to say, uh, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself. And the second principle is that you're the easiest person to fool. (laughs) So it's really hard not to rely on hope a little bit, but you've got to be really, really clear-eyed about what's possible. And again, communicate, communicate, communicate with the portfolio, with your partners, with the LPs. How do you think about that? What is the right cadence to communicate with your LPs? How do you communicate with your LPs effectively? What have you found work uh, during your now 10 years at Aligned running the firm and even days at Voyager? We at Aligned, I think, have done some really good work on this front. We've been really clear with our LPs from day one as to what kind of investments we're going to do. And then we've really stuck to that. As you said, we've been very disciplined. And because we've been so disciplined through thick and thin, and because that discipline has worked and yielded results, what I'm seeing is that investment, which took a lot of time, right? I mean, raising a fund one is no joke. Raising a fund three (laughs) is is even more no joke. (laughs) It was a big investment of time. But now what I'm seeing is it's paid off with our ability to reach out and know that the LPs understand. So you asked about cadence. When the stock market started to crater at the beginning of the pandemic, we reached out to each LP one-to-one to tell them what we were thinking, ask them how they were doing, ask them what they preferred with the cadence you know, in these uncertain times. And then we responded in, in kind. People will tell you what they need if you ask. Well, let's flip to something a bit more broad in nature uh, within the venture ecosystem, which is the notion that there is very little diversity in venture principles, decision makers, both when it comes to ethnicity, but also as it relates to gender. And I think the numbers are getting slightly better, which is very encouraging to see. You were one of the founding members of All Rays which has acted as a beacon in helping to drive gender equality in venture. What are you seeing more recently? And how do you see the future and the progress of bringing real equality, in this case, gender diversity? The numbers are modestly encouraging right now, but I worry. They're modestly encouraging that we're seeing more firms hire people of different backgrounds and cross-genders. What's concerning is that should the market start to come down and should fundraising start to come down, I think what we'll see is something similar to what we saw in 2000, which is that the last ones in are the first ones out. And this is not because people are malicious or unkind or unfair. It's because the people with the longest tenure, the longest track records, the strongest economics are going to be the ones who get to stick around. So I think we need to be really attuned to that. LPs have an important role to play in this uh, shift, right? LPs can play an important role by asking, just asking questions. It's all they really need to do is tell me what happened to Rebecca. Tell me what you're doing with Amir. What's your pipeline looking like? Who's being hired? Who's, who's staying on? Just ask the question. Well, that's a great call to action. And, and I do think that a lot of this will come down to everybody pitching in and making a concerted effort. The LPs, I agree 
are going to be a very important determinant. And, you know, from my perspective, we are excited to see this level of diversity grow. And I understand it's modest, but looking forward to really seeing it grow exponentially in the coming years. One final question for you. We have seen a massive, massive increase in the number of new firms over the last decade to a degree that has been unprecedented. And what is the single piece of advice you would give somebody that's thinking about starting a firm or has just launched a firm? You know, everybody tells you how hard it is to launch a firm, and it is. It's a character-building activity, for sure, adventure. One thing that they don't talk about is how exciting it is to be a founder, and in particular, how when you found your firm, all of the LPs are there because of you. When you come into an existing firm, you have to establish yourself with those LPs. They're not your relationships. They didn't invest in you. That's not to say that those relationships can't be established. Of course they can. I mean, that's how my initial LPs came into my my current fund is through the relationships I established previously. But 100% of the LPs in Align Partners are there because of Susan and me. And there's something pretty magical about that. Don't underestimate that. Work with those LPs, listen to them, select them carefully because it's a long relationship. But it, it sure is a delight to have all of those LPs there because they believed in me and because I believed in them. I believe in them to be a long-term investor. Very different. Well, it's amazing to hear how great a relationship you have with your LPs. And I know you've spent a lot of time nurturing those relationships to get to the level of trust and transparency that you have now. Jody, this has been amazing. Really appreciate you being on the show. Samir, it's great to be here. Thanks. And thanks for all you do for the whole venture community. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with Jody Sherman Jahick. To learn more about her and Align Partners, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts where you'll find deets on that's from the show. While you're there, hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.